the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics, where we're beggars who think we're kings, but also kings who think we're beggars. Before we begin our discussion today and introduce our guest, just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there. We are going to start implementing a little pre-episode preparation video for the patrons to give something back. So, you know, there'll be a little bit more value proposition there for people. But, you know, if not, we totally understand and uh, we'd appreciate it if you could maybe leave us a review on iTunes instead. All that said, Taylor and I are very proud to bring you this week's guest, Gabriel Tupanamba. Gabriel is a practicing psychoanalyst and the co-author of Hegel, Lacan, and Zizek, and most recently, the author of The Desire of Psychoanalysis Exercises in Lacanian Thinking, which we'll be focusing on for this discussion. But welcome to the show, Gabriel. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Coop, did you mean to like modify the, the Lacan quip about the beggar and the king? Like I said, I'm manic, so I might have fucked it up. I don't know. It's <laughs> because it's, it's beggars who think they're kings and kings who think they're kings, not kings oh. who think they are beggars. Oh, right, yeah. it's not a right, <laughs> kind of. I guess the contemporary version is kings, right? Dressed like beggars. <laughs> right. That, that what is the? It's the what? What is it? The um. This is an that? ironic reversal. See, this is ironic. Yeah, right. Slip. What well, am I? What is the? What's the unconscious <laughs> saying here? What's the like, latent content of that it, slip? It wasn't there like a fashion trend where it's like poverty chic or whatever. You know, you're rich but you you dress. Oh, I mean, like, that's like, always. Yeah, doing. that's what I. Yeah, that's what I. Th- yeah i mean there's always been that you know ripped holes in jeans have been a thing for like 50 years and people are still bitching about it so yeah exactly well do we want to the simulacra of like actual (laughs) whatever looking like authentic is kind of the funny part of it we're butterflies dreaming of being philosophers and vice versa so we like to start out as a sort of warm-up question, Gabriel, and you can feel free to take this in any direction you want, but we'd be interested in hearing, let's call it your your philosophical or even theoretical origin story, as it were. So maybe something specific to how you sort of got into analysis or Lacan's work, et cetera, or even just, you know, whatever the case may be, if you have some kind of, you know, singular moment or thought or thinker or you know, some kind of point in your life that maybe an inflection point, something like that. It'd be we always like to hear that as kind of a, a warm up question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, the reason why I got into psychoanalysis is pretty standard. It's just being crazy having <laughs> to do analysis. So that kind of helped, you know, like get acquainted. <laughs> but again, on top of that, also being annoying teenager mm-hmm. that 
felt like you had to read up on things so you feel smart when you're doing them. So that's how my family was also involved with my stepmom was a psychoanalyst. And so it was easier to get access to material and this, but I wasn't really interested in it, really neither theoretically nor like as a possible profession. I did a really weird kind of path. I started studying literature. Then I quit and went to move to England to study film. It was like trying to be a filmmaker. I mean, that's hey. how I got. Yeah, that's how, <laughs> that's how I, I learned about Zizek. <laughs> really, man, ah, that's cool. That's how I, I ended up learning about Zizek's work and kind of was doing an analysis, found out that somebody was connecting that with some criticism and so on. I went to study film and kind of fine arts and then finished my undergraduate course in that and went to, towards philosophy because of that connection between yeah. psychoanalysis and film. And then that leads to like Zizek's full take, right? But at the same time, two things happen. A very unfortunate one, which is I watched my movies and I realized they were all crap. And I said, okay, I might, might have to do something else. But also in, in doing movies, I realized what I was good at and what I really cared for wasn't really the finished product, mm. but how the organization of people in production affected the finished product. So I spent more time thinking how to plan the production so that people would engage in different ways and how that would affect what we got to shoot. And so it's interesting that actually cinema, you know, Levi-Strauss has this theory that every philosopher is like a first is frustrated in something else that was actually much more useful. I think <laughs> my frustrating movie career, I used, I actually made like a bunch of short films, all terrible. Uh, <laughs> it split the cultural imaginary fantasy side of it led me to psychoanalysis and taking that more seriously and the organizing productive side led me to kind of my political activism or whatever at least like it suddenly clarified how I would like to approach that and I think that those two tracks still kind of overdetermine one another a lot I try not to approach psychoanalysis in a way that would not make sense when I see it from the outside as just ordinary guy involved in politics. And I also try not to come up with, you know, accept things within psychoanalysis that you know, are, are my politics that I know for a fact by just listening to people every day for a long time, that they're just far-fetched, you know? So that <laughs> right. kind of helps. I would say that's kind of the background. And when you take that position, some things look very awkward. So when you, I started engaging with Lacanian schools in Brazil, it's Lacanian theory is very strong here. Some things really kind of caught my attention of how strange they were. At the same time, the similarities between kind of the destiny of Marxist organizations in Brazil, but elsewhere as well. I mean, the quantum effects in Marxist organizations where you split in two and then you split in four and then in six. And then when you arrive at one person, you split them in half as a divided subject. And then you go on splitting, right? I mean, that's, that's something you find in both fields. And that interested me a lot. Why do Lacanian organizations, but psychoanalytic organizations in general, share such interesting traits at the organizational level with socialist communist organizations? And that kind of kickstarted a research for me. But also that also means that, I mean, university was never my kind of addressee. I've never done research in academia properly. Like I've, I've done all the paths, like to have degrees and so on. But usually I was either engaged in like political collectives where we were collectively doing something together or worried about how to account for what I was doing clinically. It didn't seem like writing a good academic thesis was like 
and that stronger contribution I could make. So that also kind of split the type of addressees that concern me more concrete, at least a bit more concrete political environments and and this kind of paracademic theoretical environments where it got to be a bit more speculative. But it's more speculative to a certain extent, but it's also I think that your origin story, to call it that, right, and your your reasons for as you as you call it being para academic or sort of eschewing the academia side makes clear why the institutional element as one of the mediators of the of the clinical and the critical is front and center it really does kind of bring to the forefront the impetus behind your latest work and makes really clear in a palpable way why that is this this refrain throughout the work it makes it very clear that being concerned with this institutional dynamic this institutional dimension would perhaps put you on the outside to a certain extent of typical kind of academic discourse which tends to like assume a status quo or some sort of stability of institutions whereas you're very much concerned with their dynamization and the experimental effects that come from that. So I think that that's very palpable. Yeah, I man, yeah, there's also something I need to mention because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's relevant, I guess. I mean, you mentioned the stability of institutions, and I'm not sure how if that tracks everywhere. But in Brazil, that definitely does. And I think mm-hmm. at also other places as well. It's very common that the time you spend in university is one of the few moments that are it's socially acceptable to do something that's slightly useless. Mm-hmm. So, and think and so on, and you meet a lot of people you wouldn't meet in your job or something like that, and uh, to form cliques around abstract themes and things like that. I mean, it's very special in that sense. But it's also, because it's so conditioned, it requires such a huge institu- institutional infrastructure to allow for that to happen with so many different commitments that, Sometimes we forget that that's backing up a certain circuit of discussion, interlocution, and research. I had money. I could produce that environment without the university. So it's not, I'm not paracademic because I'm above it. I was allowed to choose. I could like spend you know, between my gra- undergraduate course and like my master's and so on. I could just spend a lot of time not doing anything. And not only not doing anything, but I had the means to, okay, other people with means might not necessarily use them this way, but I did use them to invest in getting a lot of people together from very weird places so we could, you know, discuss things in different environments. But regardless, that kind of underlying economic condition for the building of institutions that can allow us to stop, I mean, that's very poorly distributed. And it's not not for nothing that it's so hard to do these type of things outside of those environments, you know, and why we get into such kind of a pickle when you suddenly realize, okay, the constraints of academic institutions might not really be that conductive to the type of thing I want to think, but to reproduce that space outside, like you guys are doing here, like, you know, really high theoretical debates, I don't know if the meaning of high there is equivalent or not, but <laughs> really, you know, high level debate. Uh, not this early in the it morning. It takes a lot of, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what you put in your tea, you know, but like, <laughs> but uh, like, it's really hard work. So there, I think that's also a really crucial kind of layer to that. And I think that also ex- helps explain why certain confrontations with, okay, why is this? institutional space the way it is why this is delayed sometimes infinitely because 
most of the time it's either that or nothing. Either that or you come pretend like you can do it on your own, which is not true. Like I I hope the book comes across as an idea that you know the choice between either you, you side with really existing analytic institutions or you should go on your own like a lone wolf analyst like that that's not a really good alternative right i was gonna just ask kind of an off-topic question i was just kind of curious i wanted to get your thoughts as a fellow failed filmmaker one thing that i do think is very interesting about analysis and maybe even lacanian theory specifically with regard to i guess perhaps screenwriting and like developing characters right it lends itself to being able to develop complex characters right that have these contradictory motivations and like sort of the complexity of of all of that and how that could kind of open your eyes as far as a writer goes i don't know if you would what do you think about something like that man this is this is (laughs) Like such an interesting thing because I remember I was reading a lot of Lacan and whatever. I mean, it was even worse than that. I wanted to <laughs> read all these things and I wanted to write like the revolutionary didactic movie, the Brechtian movie of, to save the working class. And it was always so shitty because the only thing I think Lacan helps with that is that he has a really cool statement. I always think about this, though I don't, I'm not sure I know what it means, but it's, it sounds so cool. And I think it, it has some interest, which is he says, Desire is not articulate, it's articulated, it's not articulatable, which I think it's just a, a very kind of French way of saying desire is something you should be able to read off the path that things take rather mm-hmm. than express at any given right. point. Yeah. So usually when you write with analytic, psychoanalytic ideas in mind, you tend to, because you are seeing those ideas and you want them revealed or re- uh, like kind of informing every point, the tendency is that you you know how to justify or therefore express a justification at a, at a point to articulate what people are desiring or what's going on. And it's kind of over-psychologization a lot of the times that I think rather than using psychoanalysis to open up, like to feel like, I rather somebody read like a case by Freud and said, holy shit, people are really weird. I can make my characters as weird as <laughs> I want. Like after this, right. who gives a f-? Rather than like, well, now I know the criteria that I need to fit them in so that they are believable. And then you have yeah. this articulated, articulatable framework and things are supposed to unfold inside of it. I think that usually doesn't work. It's the same for politics. I'm very interested in this connection because generally I find this very, very hard how to how to get informed by a different discipline like psychoanalysis or some type of political history in art without it becoming something now you want to exemplify or it's it's a strange thing something that has the potential to open up something within the field it was created often takes on a different form of like something that closes something up when you change terrains you know it's not always true that like these displacements they preserve the freshness, right? And I've been thinking a lot about that. I think that there's there's actually something quite profound there to be developed because, yeah, that, that's pretty much, let's say, one of the problems with psychoanalysis. Like it, it uses a lot of insights from other fields that are meant to open up a lot of things and you just bring it to the psychoanalysis and it just becomes like this little box. So how to navigate those things is different, difficult. And I think screenwriting and psychoanalysis is a really good example of that, like, like the guys anal- uh, psychoanalysts quote, like just think of filmmaker Zizek likes. They probably all hate psychoanalysis, you know. <laughs> Definitely, they're not like Lynch is not thinking right about psychoanalysis. He's thinking about I mean, I big think fish in the Hitchcock pool of ideas, is, right? 
Hitchcock is, I think, even if it's unconscious, I think he's working through the unconscious. Nah, man. You don't think so? <laughs> no, I think he's just just being he's a... just going off of his vibe. All right. Yeah, I think uh, he's just knowing a lot about movie making. Like gotcha. I think mm. things follow Suspense. from that. Yeah. But to your point, I will say this. My roommate and I, this is my first time we're doing a watch through of Mad Men. And it's so over the top Freudian that I kind of take yeah. your meaning that I'm like, it's a little bit too meta. It kind of too much. Yeah. It's so rotely kind of Freudian by numbers that it kind of like is almost off putting. But I guess yeah, the man, general I, I audience, didn't like, like it very much. That dialogue, I mean, it does have some good stuff, but I'm just like, yeah, almost too, too Freudian for me. But anyways, yeah, now no, we can get to no, the I real. Totally agree. <laughs> we can get to the real discussion here. But this is a great point, man. Really interesting. One of the things that you kind of mentioned in terms of, you say something early, I think it's a chapter one, maybe it's in the introduction that one of the things that perhaps is problematic with psychoanalysis, whether it be, we could call it its hubris or maybe it's self-sufficiency at times is the way in which there's always this suspect relation to whether it be science or art or perhaps even politics where it has to be circumscribed as you just said kind of put into a box and the main mediator seems to be philosophy so that when we deal with these things we're, we're kind of it's a philosophy of art or a philosophy of science rather than a less mediated access and I think that that kind of helps to foreground that perhaps what is needed and what it and what is brought out in your work is a kind of a a working through and a thinking through of of the mediating factors itself of analysis which is why i brought up earlier that this institutional mediator sometimes gets left out or sometimes gets presupposed and the critical and the clinical just kind of become they can never truly have a parallax point right they, they're just kind of blind mm -hmm. perspectives to a certain extent without the means for truly laterally moving between them. And I think that that perhaps is the other symptomatic thing that I'm kind of talking about is that psychoanalysis seems to have a tendency, as you put it, to want to access, if it does, art, science, whatever, through philosophy as the mediator, because it's almost like too much direct exposure is, is somehow, whether it be compromising or whether it be perhaps even too like hands-on or something like it has to be in a form of discourse that seems palatable i'm not sure if i'm really even getting to that but i yeah no i, I get I, what you mean it's a complicated thing because again i don't think that this is this only happens in psychoanalysis but it does happen in a really pronounced way and i think mm -hmm. it happens i mean I think people rightly commented thus far with me that sometimes it seems like I'm talking about psychoanalysis when I'm just talking about Lacanian kind of space. And that's that might be true, that it's even worse than other places, though. And I think that there are places that are don't really inside psycho the psychoanalytic ecosystem that don't fit this. But since this is where I've been operating the most, from now on, guys, if I don't explain, I'm talking about the kind of Lacanian, extended Lacanian universe, okay? Right. Uh, <laughs> like a cinematic universe, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the LCU. The LCU, exactly. Oh my god! Uh, but in the LCU, I think that yes, this is this is something that I don't think it's it's for nothing. I think it's actually built into the way. Actually, it's it's a three part thing. It's first built into the way French philosophy was being done in the post war. 
it's not a Lacanian thing. It's everyone felt like they needed to have something to say about the structure of mathematics and about militants in the street. And they should have something to say about blah, blah. Lacan is perhaps a bit worse because he was treating people. He wasn't just writing books, which is pretty harmless. So if you just say in your books that, you know, mathematical formula is like a protester in the streets, like, cool, like, amazing. But if you say that and you use that to tell somebody, like, yeah, you should kill yourself, like, I think that's a bit, a bit worse, right? So the fact that there is a clinical treatment involved and that this guy really did spend a long time listening to people. That counts for something and raises the stakes. So that leads us to the second fact, like to be somebody thinking psychoanalysis inside the French milieu, I think that is a second dimension. And then Lacan did make a, a kind of a mixed use of these conceptual strategies where it is kind of all about finding this point of view, which is usually existential, from which you can kind of address this plethora of different fields. Mm -hmm. As if you're getting a privileged point of view on all of them, at the same time, pretending like this is not making heavy use of philosophy. Like It's crazy. Like all these guys could this on philosophy and be like ridiculously speculative at the same time. But that's kind of built into his approach. It managed to, to serve as the basis for some very kind of interesting, I think, brilliant hypothesis about, you know, man, you should learn to listen to people by focusing on the inner logic of what they're saying in front of you, not supposing so much about their paths. Right. I can show you that this has some structure and that that structure implicates you. And he used a bunch of ideas to make that a bit clearer. I think that's unbelievable contribution. I, I don't, I already think that singles him out with regards to other things that were being done at the time. But it's, I think it's also a product of the times that that particular way of of approaching it, I think a very vulgar Marxist would even go as far as to say, you know, it's a very kind of comfortable solution to the problem of the division of labor where you don't need anyone. You can be an expert in all fields by yourself. So you right. don't need to create kind of mixed environments where people from many fields can raise their hand and say, I don't think it really works that way. It, it kind of are okay with like with one guy knowing all the mathematics, all the physics, all the sociology, anthropology, linguistics. Like that doesn't make sense. If perhaps a Lacanian institution would have to be like a very kind of interdisciplinary place, and we definitely don't have the language for that, right? So I think that comes to the third point, which is the double necessity of building something that lasts in a world that is so ridiculously complex. You need to take into consideration hundreds of relevant parameters to talk about what you're listening to with those other two layers of how French philosophy was dealing with this, how Lacan absorbed that to propose some things. I think one of the side effects, which then gets fed into this institutional thing, which feeds off that logic, uh, the theory already has it built into, so it confirms it. The clinical space doesn't really challenge this very much. It's this idea that, well, we found some way, a singular way to listen to people that you can pretty much address the whole of human knowledge with that point of view. And it will always be meaningful in some sense. It will never make you feel like you're the stupid one in the room, even though we are most of the time. But you know, <laughs> there is a reason why Lacanians like to invite people from other fields to their conferences, but they're never invited and they don't accept if they are. 
we like to have home court advantage at all times. Right. So that, you know, we are the ones who know that science is actually foreclosing the subject. Art is, in fact, anticipating the unconscious. Politics is, in fact, committed to some ideal of wholeness that only we know how to break. Like, so, I mean, my, for example, my take on, on you know, the really good things that happen within that context that were criticisms of Lacan, for example, Guattari's position, Deleuze's position. I think it's the point of people who broke with, clearly saw that, but they were still in the same, the upper and the lower register. So the large scale French situation that overdetermined how you think of strategies to solve things and so on. And the very down to earth solution of, okay, economically, socially, this is Europe at the time, these things will be further reinforced, this one. I don't think they had the power as you know thinkers to do much about that but they clearly you could see that i mean people saw very early on that there was something weird about the collateral effects of what lacan proposed so but simplifying a lot i think that that's kind of like what i try to call lacanian ideology in the book just this right. idea that you have a procedure you did make good contributions but the way you find to justify your theoretical choices because you're touching on very kind of obscure grounds you don't we don't know what we're doing like it's not true Lacanians or analysts really know what we're doing like as a species we don't know that much about our own minds or behaviors to say yeah no this follows from that we're trying so you kind of make that disappear under this kind of very kind of rudimentary aspect of of your hypothesis under a very generalized theory of how everything kind of works and you lose the track of the boundaries of where that theory is applicable, you know? I think that the idea of signifier is very good for this, to exemplify this simply because in linguistics, I mean, we go back to the screenwriting and psychoanalysis thing. In linguistics, the signifier opened up a bunch of things. Man, you can listen to any language and you're now gonna be listening to find out what is a phoneme, how differences are structured. Like it's an opening procedure. And yes, it's, it's kind of boundless in the sense that you're interested in the structure of language in general. When you bring the signifier to the clinical space, but you're not interested in speech anywhere. You're speech, interested in the speech in the clinical space itself. And the concept you're using to name what you're doing there and what you're listening to is a concept that has built into it the idea that it applies to any context, because that's what linguists were worried about. So suddenly so it looks like any statement you make about speech in clinical space actually applies to any place at all, because after all, it refers to a, a linguistic unit and linguistic units are not constrained by the fact you're speaking in the clinic space rather than in the street, right? So that boundary disappears. So I think that's a good example of how something gets generalized, not for, you know, terrible capitalist ideological purposes, but because you're when you're building a new theory, you need to be careful with that sort of thing. And I think there was already a tendency to let that type of strategy kind of be accepted because pretty much everyone was doing it one way or another at the time. Like it wasn't really a moment of making that sort of distinction. So it is interesting that Lacan kind of sits at this confluence of the kind of structuralist, post-structuralist nexus or whatever that gap would be. For one thing, Guattari hasn't, you know, I'm fascinated by their interpersonal, their relationship and all the effects of that and just how that's just a compelling relationship to me. But some of the things that Le, he says about Lacan is like Lacan was, he gives him credit for saying Lacan schizophrenizes analysis. And I think part of that is this 
the marshalling of other disciplines to bring into the at least the theoretical space during his seminars or or what have you. To me, that's what actually kind of draws me to Lacan is mobilizing these other ideas. And I think, you know, that's kind of like in the kind of makes sense that Guattari would glom onto that and try to figure out the ways to mobilize, you know, these these different machines in concert with one another. Kind of like part the partial objects, you might even say. Yeah, I'd really like to hear more what you think of this because I mean I'm def- you're definitely more well versed in in Guattari's work than I am. But my choices in this regard to kind of stick with something within the Lacanian field and not really just kind of lean on the critiques that were already out there that I think have a lot of good and similar points. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying was said by many people, but the reason of trying to say it in the language of, you know, but changing, deforming the language of Lacanian theory rather than adopting something that was out there. You touched on one of the reasons, but I'm not sure if this is justified or just an impression that I accumulated in time, which is the way a concept works, for example, within mathematical discourse or within physics or within sociology or, you know, militant discursivity, it's very, very much dependent on the other concepts around it and the practices that, you know, you can do by mobilizing those concepts. So when you remove it from that context and bring it somewhere else, I feel like the thing that I have a hard time accepting is that you're bringing more than the word with you and some vague intuition of some kind of idea of how to, you know, a proposition of how to reconnect things anew. And sometimes that inspiration is fruitful. I think Guattari's work, Deleuze's work is really a good example of, of this. But at the same time, probably if you change the name, change, forgot the origin and just called it whatever new thing, it would work as well because you're not really bringing the thing. And other fields do this. Mathematicians, they trust like static principles when saying like, hey, I prefer this this proof than that proof. This is a beautiful proof. There is no mathematical expression of beauty, but they are bringing it from the outside. But it's slightly more responsible because the distinction that I've been using that really helps me a lot is the distinction between using and doing in the sense of, for example, you can use political ideas in right. psychoanalysis, but you're doing psychoanalysis. So I want to see analytic consequence. That's what's going to justify that you're, the thing right. you borrowed is being used. You're not going to bring it from politics and do politics. You're going to do psychoanalysis. If you brought it to the analytic field, they're going to judge it by the analytic consequences you produce. Not going to judge it by the political consequences. Otherwise, I would just remain in the political place where I would have even more tools. For example, Lacan brings some rudiments of topology into psychoanalysis. He doesn't do topology. He doesn't prove any theorems. Nothing about topology is clarified. He doesn't make any statement about topology that somebody who works with break topology would say, yeah, that tracks. So yes, it's an inspiration. It's perhaps not even a metaphor because when we say Juliet is like the sun, I know what the sun means. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm importing a lot of properties. When you say Juliet is like a non-orientable surface, <laughs> I, a Riemannian I think, yeah, I think we're saying even less than that. So I'm 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 <laughs> not sure. So I don't think Lacan had a good, I think it's it's amazing that he was aware enough that psychoanalysis always depended on other fields, like any nascent field depends, that he tried his hand at renewing those dependencies. I don't think he had a good method on how to evaluate good dependencies and spur- spurious ones. To the point that he started claiming like speech and analysis is modeled by the signifier. Let's use linguistics to think about it. And after a couple of years, he just 
forgot it was a model. And he said, speech is the signifier. Let's use topology to understand the signifier. But dude, there are no signifiers in the room. Like <laughs> you brought it up from the outside, you know? So how did it fall as if it became a concept? Like it was stolen at that moment, you know? And like, as if it's a natural thing in our environment, but, but it's not. So of course you can say he deformed, he changed. Yeah, but then it's no longer, a, it's something else. So I have the impression that there is, again, it's just an impression. I might be wrong. You guys really know better than me. I have the impression, I, I just feel too much of this French eclecticism that mm. it's just entitled to put their hands in any field without paying the price for the field. Like nobody, these philosophers, right. they don't know that much about these fields. They know the fields are interesting. They're not necessarily good guests in those areas. <laughs> you know, speak the language enough. Like, I don't know many languages, but I, if I go a place, I want to know how to say thank you. Right. Things like this. So people know I'm trying. That's yes. my knowledge of mathematics. Like every time a mathematician tells me like, dude, <laughs> you're trying too hard but i i feel it like i know yes. you, you know, yes. i see you i i feel like okay I've, i know the basic of you know hospitality amongst fields like right i don't think that most of these french philosophers were worried about that i don't think french europe has a really good record on knowing how to be in other places like you right, know right. so perhaps they Fair didn't enough. have get, get the right. training but i just feel like even the thinkers who criticize lacan but kept that part, they actually radicalized it rather than try to parse it out and find better criteria. It seems like that's right. the part I, I can't, I find that the most charming things about Lacan sometimes are the problematic ones. That's what's so hard to lose. Yeah. Like he authorizes me to do a lot of things I like to think about, but I cannot produce consequences by doing what I like. So right. I think there's much more joy in the way these things get connected in Deleuze-Guattari's work which I think it's a really good criteria for thinking abstractly about things. Right. But because I don't know where the joints are of these things you call machines, I don't know right. how to evaluate if they're working properly or if I just turned something on with no fuel inside. I don't know how to produce <laughs> consequences from that. And, you know, right. that pisses me off <laughs> a bit. It does seem interesting then that this is perhaps gives us a handle to things. For example, what, you're call, what you call Lacanian ideology right, which is this generalization, for example, of the signifier outside of its, you know, proper domain, if we consider linguistics to be its proper domain, and, and it's sort of importing it without thinking through those consequences. But that also goes for the other types of dabbling that you're describing. There is a sense, too, then, that perhaps, and this is maybe why some of the language of desiring machines becomes less I would say accentuated that phrase at least becomes less accentuated in something like a thousand plateaus where this language of assemblages takes on much more of prominence. And we, we could speak of something like desiring machines as a type of the Guattarian ideology. If it's overgeneralized outside of the field, although there's something generic itself about desire machine, whatever, but as you're saying, sometimes it's hard to know, you know, where are the brakes starting and the flows are starting. Where, when are we in a full body without organs or a cancerous body, right? Like some of the terminology can perhaps become an encumbrance at sometimes. Perhaps like any uh, any philosophy or any field where the jargon can start to presuppose a sufficiency and make us rest on our laurels and think half the battle is already won just by deploying the field when in fact 
we're not actually thinking we're sort of presupposing ready-made constructions that could be inhibiting and i think that's something that you're trying to get out with emphasizing the institutional dimension that sometimes gets lost that it leads to these impasses many of which you you sort of work out and i think that's why that first chapter you kind of show that like it's like every 18 20 years there are these these crises at least in the lacanian analytic field but there is something to the fact that how much have we learned from the crises? Isn't there a sense in which we've, you know, everything's been, I know, the Liz and Guadra use this image of sort of blowing up a fortification, but everything falls back into the the very same place out of which it's been blown. So there's senses which like how much change and, and how much uh, new possibilities have been opened by these crises? Isn't there really just kind of a circling of of the wagons? I don't know if you have anything to say about that institutional aspect. I know Zizek is pretty good at at the forward kind of announcing some of the, let's say there's there's some of the Eurocentrism of the Malarian camp. There's a sense of a kind of reactionary conservative inertia to uh, to some of these things that gets brought out with, especially with the commitments to politics and the presuppositions of, you know, you can't be for the right or the the left. They both threaten the state of law, the stability of our discourse, of our very practice. They threaten our, I would say, our sort of, you know, self-assured continuance of analysis, which I think is extremely problematic to a certain extent, right? So it's, it kind of double binds us to being quote unquote centrist when that seems to be very dangerous to a certain extent. So all of these things came out front and center at the start of your work. And I guess that's a good thing to perhaps uh, just get your reflections, your feelings on these things. I mean, obviously, I didn't really ask a theoretical question there. I'm I'm sorry. but No, man, that, but this is this interests me so much because I didn't write about this in the book. I felt like it was definitely too much because I also think it's not a, a particular uh, a reading that has kind of become standard as a kind of post-dependence theory trope of Marxist literature, but it definitely influenced a lot how I approach these things. You know, in Brazilian critical theory, we have, um, um, it's going to be a roundabout answer, but it goes back to what That's you're fine. saying. Okay? In Brazilian critical theory, we have a tradition that kind of, you know, dependence theory has this whole development on how center and periphery relate and this type of further imbrication between even and even and combined development. It's not, you know, you start realizing underdevelopment is actually, you know, the way that that countries are brought into modernity and so on, blah, right. blah, blah. But then these guys came along and they said, you know what's the weirdest thing? We're looking now at underdeveloped countries like, you know, peripheral and certain types of semi-peripheral countries. And we're realizing that they developed in these dire conditions of having to deal with, you know, formal and informal employment, violence and illegality and legality being hybridly mixed, you know, being, being close to extractivist sources and, and having to manage over-exploited surplus populations, things like this. That's actually the best social technology for capitalism. Capitalism thrives here. Right. And actually, the conditions of supposedly advanced countries, that's kind of the, the exception. It mm. was only possible because like ridiculous amount of human fuel was put into Europe and the States for a while. And right. that's coming to a halt because there isn't anymore. And now the peripheral form of capitalism is going to 
go towards the center. It's right. called peripherization thesis. And the mm -hmm. idea is that, well, the thesis of imperialism was the one where the center was expanding towards the periphery. You could develop this as any way you wanted, how the periphery would be included. But the idea that now the periphery is going towards the center and that this kind of lumpenization, this weird effects that you get, the development of the extreme right today, all is connected to that. And I think that one thing that these authors, especially a Brazilian philosopher called Paulo Arantes, develops is has, you know, look at what happened in other moments in time when kind of revolutionary thinking lost its referent because society kind of dissolved below it. You look at what Marx wrote of, you know, in German ideology about what happened at that, that, those type of moments. It just becomes like an empty phraseology. And mm -hmm. the idea of a self-reflecting text, text that implies to itself and that poeticizes and cherishes its own lack of reference, that appears in those moments. Hmm. Lo and behold, the 70s in Europe and France, society <laughs> starts to crumble. This sort of you know, advance of the periphery towards the center finds a kind of tipping point, right? Certain patterns of accumulation are no longer possible. A certain destiny is no longer there. Or, you know, there's certain intellectual ideals and so on. Suddenly you get this kind of really kind of increase of the idea that you are the most political in your thinking when you have absolutely no interest in having a domain of reference mm. and your discourse is the most self-reflective as possible. It talks about discourse. It's thinking, thinking about thinking. And that's right, right, right. You know, a kind of absorption of politics into political philosophy. I think that when I, I spoke of these three layers, like you have the French milieu of that time, right. then you have Lacan inside of that milieu, then we have what we've done with them. Both the first, that environment, and what we've been doing with Lacanian psychoanalysis since then is very overdetermined by this general frame. And this general frame, what it questions is, for the case of psychoanalysis in particular, is, guys, you, you need to do things to get patients in front of you, to talk in a certain way. But because your theory is developed in an era where it's cool to pretend like you're not talking about things but you're talking about talking. You're talking right. about the conditions of possibility of talking about <laughs> things because things are actually just a way of talking. You can't name the basic material condition that makes your practice possible. So you, you now need to choose. Either you sound like a vulgar guy saying, do you know there are only two room, two people in this room? Or you're all a can and say, no, but there's always a third because language is in fact, blah, blah, blah. You cannot yeah, yeah. bring the two together. And the guys who realize this we're stuck in the same time. So the, the critique they made of this is also the problem with Lacan is too much reference. We need even less reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I don't want the perfect philosophical imminent plane. I just want to be able to explain why it's so hard to get patients who don't pay, to feel comfortable in a room, to freely associate. And the intricacies of keeping that thing alive and what gets in the way of that, like... That's also why I, I, I developed an unfortunate, I mean, I'm trying to get over it now, but I, an unfortunate allergy to like calling this type of inquiry philosophical because I think it's too caught up right now. It's kind of code word for, I care for the inner consistency of the way I'm going to describe how things hold together. And if you still cannot navigate stuff out there with this, it's fine. It's your problem. Like, no, I want this to be addressed to people with specific problems and only to solve those problems. And I do feel like there is a trade-off where there is some, you need to lose some generality. 
That's what I've called mm. regionalization, like define the parameters. Right. So right. that you can also recuperate a bit of a referent. And referent doesn't mean things that are out there and they're just are. Right. I mean, you know, if you put together a cup and then you call it a cup, it wasn't a passive thing. You put it together, but you have to put it together, you know. Things happening at both levels at once, and one thing helps the other, and if, depending on how you think about it, you're going to build something rather than something else. But talking about restricted domains, it's not like I'm some boring, hopefully, boring Wittgenstein and like, oh, this this <laughs> statement has no state of affairs. But that's my Arnold Schwarzenegger Wittgenstein. <laughs> uh, we can't be cooler than that while still talking about real things. And that's what it worries me. And I, I think that this kind of, issue is what what makes the perturbations to psychoanalysis a crisis and not an opportunity for anything it's just a crisis in the sense of it's just a, gr a group of people generally blind to some issues for social reasons for historical reasons for the lack of epistemological kind of approach to it and lack of theoretical means to to just raise issues like hey guys like the fact that you know our sampling of patients only comes from a part of town. Do you think that is perhaps, you know, affecting what we think is universal about analytic structures at all? Like we cannot ask that question. We don't have the means to suggest that there is a correlation between these things. And that's vulgar sociology. Like we sh you should, right. there's nothing special about asking that question, but we can. I think the crises are like just periods of adaptation to the fact so we just kind of settle back, exactly as you said, like we implode and settle exactly back to where we were because there is no other plan to build something else. We don't know how to build something else. We've explained away this crisis as if there's nothing interesting in them. I just think that the tools we have to make them interesting right now are not the same tools we have to identify things we can change. The tools that are available to identify points of change in analytic societies, in the way we approach clinical work, I think they're right now coming from fields that hate psychoanalysis, that look mm. at us as ordinary practices. Like, just talk about you no know, regular, you know, political economy. Like, look at your clinic as if you're like a baker. In some right. level, you're not that different from other professions. So there is a trade-off right now where I feel like we need to portray ourselves as less singular, so we're able to be put into the series of with other cases. Uh, of things that other theories can explain better and say, look, guys, if you have a problem with, you know, social dynamics, organizational structures, how you deal with deliberation, how you approach, like, you know, how cases get in, you do induction out of cases into general structures, like, these things, they don't concern psychoanalysis. They concern anything that has certain properties, and which psychoanalysis also has. So I think right now, it's almost like, again, learning to be a bit of a guest in somebody else's world. You have mm -hmm. your personal things. You do want psychoanalysis to survive, but you need to accept being seen in a weird light to bring to the fore the building blocks we can actually, you know, have some traction with and build stuff with. The interesting ways of describing psychoanalysis right now, I don't think they cut it. And that's also what I felt was a bit what happened with the reception of this book, where the fact it was criticizing Miller, criticizing a bit of the Lacanian establishment, was the thing that caught on, like Zizek speaks mostly about that in his preface, for example. Yeah. But the fact that this also affects, you know, the critiques themselves, because they were also built under the same presupposition, I think that's harder to, 
to absorb. And I ultimately think it's only going to, if it's going to have any consequence, it's going to have consequence with like young psychoanalysts yeah. from places where the problem of, you know, either I sound like a Calacanian or I get patience to have dignity in my, in my couch. I currently need to make that trade-off because, you know, like patients who pay you money and you pay your rent with that money. Are you telling me that if the threat of your rent going out of the door, if you make like a crazy interpretation, that that threat is not going to change how I interpret things? Of course it is. Like, why? There's not one text written about how the payment affects analysts, not the analysts and the castration because the fell is like, right, the person right. who's getting paid is the other person. Like, why is his interest, interest and concerns in place? Like, it's not the analysis castration that money is concerns. Is somebody's getting paid their job. Yeah. How does it affect your job that you need the money when your job is doing something that, as we were saying before, like in the backstage, like doesn't necessarily make people feel good, right? If, even yeah. if just for a while, like that should be like a major conundrum. So people who are affected by that sort of question, I think they're the ones who have a chance of pushing forward this more practical reconstruction. Otherwise, I think we're just going to see a bunch of these crises, then somebody's going to have like find a rhetorical way to further integrate the phraseological side of psychoanalysis with subversion, subversive space speaking with an elitist practice that makes a very small group of people feel like they have deep lives. And that's the future of it. And yeah, I mean, that's very much in the cards for this practice, I think. That's a pretty bleak future, though. But go ahead, Coop. I was going to say, in this part of the book, I was thinking about how it's a weird dynamic with the analyst because they're almost like a landlord, like they're almost like a rent seeker to some degree because the way you work through this, the analyzand is the one that's actually performing the work in the session, and then they're basically financing the analysis of other analyzands. I mean, that's very like, that could be a great metaphor for like, Landlord, like right? Because uh, well, it's uh, like, uh, hey, <laughs> the, the, the renters, let's say, are providing the landlords, or the renters are the one who are providing housing for others. So there is like this social good out of this practice, but that's obviously the capitalist sort of discourse that I think you know you were sort of trying to problematize here. But I don't yeah, know. Maybe I, I'm I, a bit I, off. I, I, <laughs> no, man, but because this is a big, big deal, like. I remember being very struck by this realization, like, okay, in some very obvious sense, the analysis is doing some work. Like, it's there's an effort happening, but I'm the one getting mm -hmm. paid. Right. These days, I know that that's, there's a lot of effort on the other side. But it's not something analysts know how to talk about. Like, we're supposed not to pretend like we're not working as well, because right. we don't yeah. know how to qualify that work. And... I think that that's the first point. Like there is, there must be a way of developing an approach where you get to see. First of all, the problem is there's, I, I would say, concrete labor on the side of the analysis, but it doesn't have the social form to have value. It's concrete labor in the same sense that when Marx says, you know, if you spend ten hours building a table, but the socially necessary labor time is like two hours, those eight hours more, it's your yeah, loss. There's no man. value like, per se. Yeah, but I think that's the requires... important part. I think this, yeah. this, uh, it's almost like the potlatch. It's like the ledger is equivalent at the end, so to speak, because there is no value in the sense of a surplus economic value. But the 
flip side of that is there's a it's a like a there's a social value in a sense in terms of like the social relation or i don't know a yeah that's the direction that i would go yeah like an alizan that's kind of like more aware of their own or more like in touch with their own lack or something like that would be perhaps have positive effects out in the social space because i was thinking about psychoanalysis based on that your political economy chapter as like potentially this model for a social practice that doesn't it's a a positive social practice that's iterable and repeatable that doesn't result in a surplus and therefore does not result in this sort of power imbalance coupled with that the fact that analysis you have to be analyzed first right so there's a sort of egalitarian ethic that model i don't know sounded kind of interesting for me because i've been thinking about okay what is a social practice that can have its own like i guess what autopoiesis where it actually has positive functions the way that capitalism perpetuates itself but has sort of you know deleterious outcomes in the social space by like negating social relations and making it all using money to, to, and so forth but that's kind of a man. harebrained <laughs> scheme man but look i must say like that chapter is one that i'm one of the it's one of the frailest chapters because oh i loved it though yeah no i think it's good because there aren't that many things on it so it it stands out because the lack of competition which is something in itself but i spent the last I don't know, four years after i wrote it working on not on this but working <laughs> on just developing political theory with the research collective and now i think we're getting to a way of describing things that helps to better situate what that chapter is pointing to because i didn't have a way of discussing value form that allowed me to realize like to have a robust way of saying something like you know something happens with analysis which is you're invited by some agreement and some trust that you're going to say a bunch of things that are valueless to your life it's not going to make you more productive it's not going to increase any kind of it's not going to make you won't be able to charge more for your hours in your work you won't be able to you know spend less to reproduce yourself with your means of subsistence whatever it's not going to have any useful impact but you take that surp- that that kind of indifferent material and you add it to a social kind of partnership that can give it two forms it can give you let's say it can just put it into the socially validating form of value itself because if you do that for long enough you'll be qualified in some way and at that point it counts as a skill a skill you acquired and now you can make money so ultimately it's like you went to a training school or something right? apprenticeship yeah yeah and it might be the case that you didn't change anything about you just learn how to reproduce those behaviors you can just imitate your analyst and learn the lingo i tried to do that for a while in my analysis and i know my patients try to do it as well that's just there in the table but you can also learn to connect what you're saying because value form is pretty much on a very large scale but if you miniaturize it a bit it's the conditions for whatever it is you're doing or whatever object you have or whatever thing to fit and to be abstracted in the sense of this matters and this doesn't so that it can connect with other parts in a commodity producing system right so it's a form you need to conform things to so that it can have social circulation under certain criteria, right? right? But that's not the only form that exists. One thing that psychoanalysis does seem to pr- wish to offer at some point is the idea 
that, well, this indifferent material that appears in your speech, it can actually connect you to other people who also believe that material is actually relevant and who are struggling to find structure there and name it. You know, it's almost like the international gossip society. Like you're taking the gossip about your life and you're saying there's thinking in your gossip mm. about love. And we can actually come up with names for patterns, names for behaviors, names for problems. But these structures only appear if you talk to somebody very right. freely about them without really knowing where you're going, which is kind of how sometimes, you know, good gossip happens as well. So then you're interested in the form that these things need to take so that they can circulate in this alternative circuit, which is not a circuit of value. It will, in, it will kind of touch and, and kind of propagate itself through and have some relation to value because that's the society we live in, but you're actually building something else. But it's how do we know that that's happening? I mean, if all clinical cases ultimately confirm everything we already knew, if we don't know how to learn something new, like from clinical cases, like what needs to happen in the clinic? So you would say, shit, okay, this is something, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this person is saying. The person themselves realize that, you know, in some level, okay, this, this is something worth trying to fit with what we already know and make room for this idea. And is it appearing with other people? I have the impression that a lot of the properties we call virtues that psychoanalysis produces traversal of fantasy, having a better relationship with otherness, all those things are kind of side effects of getting entangled in this alternative international we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how you behave when you care for those things. Like you're not going to dismiss people's speech because you think they're thinking there, you know, you know, know how to listen to others a bit better. So I think that that chapter, it would have benefited from this alternative approach to value form, which I didn't have at the time. I was kind of just trying to get my head around it, but I feel like it, it could have been a bit clearer, but it just took four or five years since then working on with this group, a subset of theoretical practice where this is what we're working on all the time, like how to give an organizational description of political economy that is useful for militant activity. So a side right. effect of that is that I think it's better language to describe this sort of type of challenge. But man, yeah, I think that it's similar to the type of, and, and then it clarifies this, if you're an organizer in a political activity and political movement, or if you're an organizer in a city, the type of people who join many different movements, they're interested in their connections, you end up in a position very similar to an analyst where you're not interested in what their people are actually doing. You're interested in that part of what they're doing that could get them to connect with another movement in a way that's actually turning an, a means, right? They're, they, don't, they meet in a parking lot to discuss things. And from there, they do what they want to do. That's the end. But that meeting in the parking lot, you could just get this other movement that, you know, works with, I don't know, organic fruits and vegetables to sell them there because they're all there and they're hungry. Then a means became an end and you bounded things that were useless with each other through new structures. See, this That's is schizoanalysis. <laughs> this is schizoanalysis, I think. But Taylor, you might be able yeah. to speak to that better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not talking about analysis. I'm talking about people organizing. I'm, well, I don't I mean, think that affects at all. I think the mobilization may be. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. And that's my point. Like, I'm still to be convinced that there is one way of speaking about what we do in the intimacy of people in their solitude talking to us and right. what we do when we're collectively acting together, that it's just one discourse. Like, I do find that the similitudes become come more to the fore 
But I want to have a political discourse where people don't need to know anything about psychoanalysis and the problems and challenges yeah. are clear and we can talk strategy. And I need a discourse to talk about the intricacies of how family life and your love relations and so on kind of connect you to this myriad of other people who also go through that. I don't think I might be able to just kind of have this general thing. The moment that I try to arrive at that, I feel that thing coming back where the referent disappears and the mm. internal consistency of the concepts comes to the fore. And I sound cooler, but <laughs> I don't know how to do things like right. that. Yeah. Right. Interesting. I will say one of the things that I really respected in the work and that sometimes I think as, you know, we're, I'm going to call Coop and I lay, lay person since we're not practicing analysis like you are. But one of the things that came to the fore was this commitment to the fact that in analysis, there is always the potential in principle for the analysand to reach this point, which Lacan, you know, calls the past, which you deal with in your last chapter. But this notion that there could be this moment of passing from analysand to analyst to having these things you were talking about, these this know-how, these skills to sort of do analysis, whether it be for a means of subsistence or you know income, whatever. But that in principle, this should be open, kept open for analysands to possibly become this. And I like how you end the book and the conclusion and kind of saying that if we cease looking at the past as this one thing, as though it's this limit, and rather think of it kind of as being able to be parceled out, so to speak, you know, whether or not we measure the units, but that in a certain sense, that opens it's a more egalitarian process when we start to consider, for example, the role of money and and the things you were talking about earlier about why is it that, you know, the clients we're getting are, are really from one sector, one stratum of society. Isn't that problematic in and of itself? And, you know, the insidious role of money that kind of keeps many people from being able to participate in that. And so there is this sense in which there is a more egalitarian notion in thinking the past much more. I mean, you use the word kind of fragment. I, I think it's, I'm wondering about it. It's almost like quanta of pass that's going yeah. on, right? If we have that kind of thinking rather than rather than only those paying customers at full price can really get certification or what you know, pass in the sense of certification, then there 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 opens up this, it makes it much more it adds another layer to your political economy chapter, right? About mm -hmm, the role mm -hmm. of money and and I think that that's, that's definitely one thing I guess I would add to it that, you know, and I appreciate that you've kept thinking about this, this problem, because I do think there's a certain sense in which that chapter, which is beautiful and which is great, doesn't necessarily have an end. It's as though it's, it's as though you were, you weren't yet, hadn't yet figured yeah. it out. But I do like that you end the book with this notion of the past could become much more egalitarian. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why Lacan dropped the notion of the past, because it became its own impasse, you know, again, not the pun, but that's kind of a pun you two made. <laughs> but I do like this notion of a, of a kind of a quantum aspect of the past where it's, it doesn't have to be this thing only for some, you know, yeah. only, only for an elite. Yeah, man, I think that there's two levels to these. 
actually three because I I like this very much this way you 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 defined it like to give it a more discrete or kind of yes when we're talking about like we were just talking about like oh the value form is a way to move around in the social space organized by commodities you need to acquire this form you need to be typed in this particular way so that you can kind of be compatible with other commodities compared and so on well the past might be the form through which certain subjective structures get passed around like yeah. they need to acquire a certain form you need to be able to because I like to think in these double conditions that I think allow you not to be overly stuck to the local nor the global point of view of things, which is you can always think about social forms as they have some resolution, some kind of covering of, of reality that is what you say, the quantum, the local aspect, mm -hmm. but that's plastically conditioned on the rules you have for stitching them together. So if you change the rules what the right. minimal unit is changes. It's a middle out approach, right? So right. if we're talking about playing the road, basketball, I mean, the units probably are people, players, perhaps our body parts. If we're talking, so that's the synthetic point of view changes what counts as a unit. But if we start talking about, you know, are they healthy or not, these players? Suddenly the unit mm -hmm. might be like their organs, physiology, and so on, because the synthetic point of view also changes. So both things change together. You don't need to choose one to start from. I think the past is kind of like a good way of approaching these two things. What counts as a unit right. of relevant analytic information is conditioned on the structure we have for connecting these things. If we only care if they're hysterics or obsessives, and we only care for other things when they don't fit, and like, oh my God, the times have changed, technology destroyed us. We're not going to change the rules through which we connect things. So the question of, making the past less of this endpoint horizon that is meant right. to be all of these things at once. It's the, the criteria for you to be able to help psychoanalysis, to inform psychoanalysis with your own analysis, at the same time that it just might have just guaranteed that you're just like every other analyst. So if those two things are the same, pretty much you've been trained to be a Lacanian, right? If those things are different, that means that your analysis ended. We now have an impasse, which is how do we put your analysis with all its weird stuff in series with other stuff we already knew? And that's going to require us to change things around, find room for these new variations and so on. So I think that the past is not really a theory of here or a theory of the end of anything. It's more a theory of how you synthesize parts because the risk is being versed, which is to say there is no difference between analysis and analysis. And mm. everyone at every time should be able to contribute. And I find that very condescending because once you've gone through a bit of analysis, you know it took you some work to get somewhere and that place is worth kind of, it's of kind of human value to you. So telling others, you don't need this. You can just speak your mind. Like it's actually depriving people of something you had. So that's also why I think that some solutions like, well, just have psychoanalysis on the street, psychoanalysis uh, in public service. So I, I get it. I find it's better to have it than not. And I find it like, I know a lot of great people doing really heroic work with this, but you might be offering to others something that you wouldn't accept. Hmm. And it's not that you need to become an analyst, but the horizon that what you're saying can contribute to developing psychoanalysis. That's, for me, the underlying idea of the past, that there is a continuum between in this position of analysis, and that what's being developed there should be able to inform how people work and listening to other people. Being listened to is a condition for how analysts listen. 
And you might change position or somebody might learn from you by listening to you, but somehow these two things are connected. And yeah, I think that on the very practical immediate level, that could mean, man, if some people just like come, come into the room and it takes them like a couple of months to have like some crazy weird breakthrough in the mm-hmm. sense that they're convinced that this thing exists, well, that shouldn't qualify you, you know. If I mean, Freud actually writes in this way. He says if you if you can use your own kind of unconscious material as examples for, mm-hmm. you're kind of already in an analytic position. Like you're already detached from something enough that you can offer it to others, you know. And then people can do something with it. You need to be ready for it. But you don't need to wait for the, for you to be in a position to do this in some complete, absolute, fantastical sense. To have something to contribute to this conversation that might inform people. It might inform them in confirming what they know. It might inform them some other way. But, you know, this is a way of getting people into analytic schools in a position that is not just of a student, much earlier in the analytic processes. And I think that could challenge a lot of things because you would have to speak differently in these schools. You would see different races. You would see different people there rather than just this you know, a bunch of usually, even in Brazil, like mostly white women around one guy, even though we're discussing total and taboo, you know, like, right, right criticize the hard structure. And, and it's kind of yeah. like, what's yeah. going on? It would challenge that in a very immediate level. But I think also would challenge in the broader sense that this would allow us to get a bit of information that's more diverse to challenge how we approach what is universal and what is general. And if we don't do this, the elitist future is going to wait for us, not because we're evil people, but because only a very small sample of people will be effectively, you know, the reference of our discourse because we only train this little machine on them, right? So I think that's the second level. And the third level, which is even further than that, like there's the getting people into Lacanian schools, adapting Lacanian school, Lacanian theory to its time, but there's also the fact that I think we can even re-describe a lot of psychoanalysis from that perspective, because from that point of view, psychoanalysis is more is less about speech and more about listening. And I think that you do manage to re-describe a lot of the core concepts of psychoanalysis if you look at it not in the line of, let's say, a development of what a patient is saying, what they get to say, what they manage to say throughout the course of their analysis, but the increments on how much they get to listen from what they said throughout their analysis. They might be saying the same thing throughout the whole analysis. They're just changing how they listen to themselves. That's mm. much more important. And that's what really qualifying somebody either to be an other analyst. And speech doesn't really give you a sense of how a clinical case connects to others. But if mm-hmm. I tell you that the patients are, the efficacy comes from analytic listening, but also how much this increments the patient's listening, there is a parameter that then cuts across. It's easier to see how it needs to other or other processes, right? So I, I have a feeling that a lot of things get cl- clarified from that point of view. And so I, I see that there's three kind of steps that this development of rethinking theory of the past is something a bit more structural and fundamental potentially could lead to if, if brighter people help me out developing. Well, you have you have one phrase I, I really like you bringing out the aspect of listening. I always love, you know, Freud has several different diagrams of the unconscious but the one i really like the most is the one that kind of looks like pac-man but it has the acoustic kind of like a little top 
you know, leading into the unconscious. And sometimes that gets left out in some of the diagrams, but it's really important to emphasize that acoustic dimension, especially when we consider the analysis, the analysis analyst uh, sort of, uh, you know, pair. But there was one thing, you have this really beautiful phrasing, and I think it speaks to your question about the sort of limited elite sampling where you say, and this is in that political economy chapter, you say the generic perspective in psychoanalysis as much as in politics is always the one which asks who is allowed to participate in the infinite process of reinventing what it means to be human. I know I'm just kind of restating some of the things we've already talked about, but I really thought. Yeah, that but it was sounds one, cooler. Uh, I mean, that was one <laughs> that, I, that, that, I, that I highlighted because I thought it was it was very succinct and impactful and and really did appreciate that that way of framing it. It, it hit home. So, yeah, man, I, I think that it also highlights something that I, I, I want to make sure it comes across because it's really hard to balance these two extremes because, you know, there is a sense in which psychoanalysis is, you know, kind of a little laboratory of seeing what, how people get their shit together mm -hmm. in the most diverse ways and being interested in this diversity. But the process of turning this into some propositions, guys, some things are possible. We didn't think they were possible, but, you know, I guess a shoe can hold your subjectivity together, you know, in this weird, important place that it acquires. Or sexuality is much more polymorphous than we thought. Like, you can expand it in that way in a yeah. kind of regulated procedure. On the other side, you can realize that, well, but who gets to say this? Shouldn't we strive for everyone to participate right. in this? And the hard thing is that one thing can cancel the other out, where if it's a laboratory, some people are the lab rats, some people are the scientists. And if you accept that, it's much easier to develop procedures for comparison of cases, development of theories, and so on. On the other side, if everyone is participating, and participation is just, let's say, let me pitch in on what it means to be human or what subjectivity can, how it can vary. You're being condescending to yourself and to others in the sense that evidently, this type of investigation into what we're capable of takes a lot of work and it's not going to be intuitive. It's not going to be how you want it to be. So how to, to have this kind of sense that you need that egalitarian drive because the sampling needs to be the most diverse possible and the method of extracting information out of the sampling needs itself to be diverse. So you can't only have one person listening to the whole world. You need both both poles of that equation to vary. And if they vary enough in a finite pool, you'll find that they cross some places, right? But at the same time, you do need some procedures because you're, this doesn't come automatically to us. So treading that balance where you want to describe an analytic procedure that gets the chance of being enriched and therefore enriched by the more the more egalitarian it is the more enriched it is with more information and so on but nevertheless has some structure that we yes. can discern it from what it is not and not yes. say that that's this is happening everywhere so yeah. that people actually get to participate in something otherwise they don't get to participate right. if you just say that yeah everyone is already there then they don't get to go for the journey so there needs to be a journey because in practice we see there is there it takes effort but it should be thought in such a way that it's clarified the fact that it it's a sort of procedure that benefits greatly and not for political or ethical reasons, for strict epistemological analytic reasons. You can be 
the most apolitical person in the world, I think if you're serious about psychoanalysis, you're kind of obliged to get interested in listening to very diverse people. Or even if it's not you, you might be a specialist, but you need to find a way to glue what you're doing with diverse things for the simple fact that this is a condition for the actual thing you're studying. If you study like a bunch of birds, you're going to just have properties about one bird, man. You need to know all the birds, like for the same reasons. You know, it's not like because you need to, you know, be interested in, in Marx. You should go in, be interested in Marx for Marxist reasons, I think. So yeah, it's it's a it's a hard balance to have. You know, that's why the, the generic and the participation in that statement, their intention, I think, like you can get to one if you abdicate that participation costs something. And then you get the generic in the sense that everything goes, right? Or you can abdicate from the generic by just sticking to participation and having very clear criteria and not really challenging how things are. It's bringing the two together, it's complicated. But for psychoanalysis, I think it's easier than people think. I think we just need to, right now, I think we need like immediately for, at least for like young Lacanian analysis, we need a mixture of lowering expectations and creating collective pressure. If we're okay with the fact that you can analyze people while you're still in your analysis, you're just going to be perhaps the best analyst, but you're not going to kill anyone. You can help people. (laughs) You know, I like that. I, I, you know, the Lex Luthor of physics, Stephen Wolfram, he has this theory of computational irreducibility, the idea that you reach a certain computational complexity and then you cannot see something else as a pattern because it has the same complexity as your system, the observing system. And I think that this uh, version of this theory applies to psychoanalysis. You know, you can only analyze people as far as you went in your analysis. Like, that's so ridiculously true, man. Like, you, you can't analyze people if you haven't, you don't understand choices you haven't, you don't know how to make, you know, you can't because you cannot express them. But that doesn't mean that up to that point, you're not in a position to listen to people and deliver back to them something that is in their speech that they didn't pay attention to. So, and that's how we do. Like I started my clinical work. I still had a lot of analysis to do, still have. So, but that's not how we talk about it. Like you could just realize like, man, yeah, you're going to take it to some point, be honest about it. And at that point say, man, I'm going crazy with you here. Like, I think you should really see someone else, you know, that way you can already add more people form more people, train more people into analysis and and make it more heterogeneous, take it to places where it's not. And we need collective pressure so that this is recognized as legitimate. It can have standards. It's not like anything goes. That's like an immediate strategy we could work on. There is something to this now listening to us, you know, discuss, I mean, not just listening, but this notion of listening and thinking about sort of some of the things you you bring out in the book, I'm struck by how there is this interesting aspect that psychoanalysis institutionally is perhaps has the structure of what Badu might call an event. And there is some sort of fidelity to, as we could say, subjects, both analysts and analysands to the truth, if you will, of the unconscious. And we have to, in some of the work that's being done and the working through is sort of deriving the consequences of that fidelity and the effects that it supposedly can have, both clinically, critically, institutionally, the sort of the connecting that up to the situation and how that can shift not only the way we sort of our own worldviews, but the the consequences that it can have in the state of the situation and knowledge. I mean, there's 
there's something uh, the way you work through the trying to dynamize the experimental conditions of psychoanalysis bring a little bit of if you will freedom or even entropy back into something that seems so inert i feel like there is something of the structure of fidelity i mean you use some of the the Bidusian terms but i'm thinking yeah. about about it in these terms too that there is something about a fidelity to the event of psychoanalysis and it seems as though it's it's just as simple as sort of taking up the consequences of of the truth of the unconscious you know in the in Badu sense right and and, and, yeah, 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 yeah. and connecting and connecting those up and what what effects can follow from that this is one of the things i'm i was very aware writing the book that i was i mean clearly borrowing from Badu a bunch of ideas but i was also putting them in a context that I I know it's kind of kind of uh, provisory like it it's not the best footing for them because psychoanalysis is not an event like if you want to go by Jewian like it's not its own eventual field and you can tell that for two reasons first is that it cannot treat everything that appears before it it's conditioned and and I mean I I have enough kind of connections here in Brazil with people who who deal with the analysis of victims of state violence and torture from the dictatorship. And you can see a lot can be done, but some things cannot be done simply because they don't have the shape of things psychoanalysis can work on. There are collective problems that will require collective mourning and collective interventions. And the very form of the problem is not something you can enact under transference. And, and amazingly enough, for example, you will see transferential enactments of, let's say, police mistreatment more with doctors who are also analysts in a hospital, and they therefore represent an institution. At the same time, they are their doctor. That puts them in a position that's more similar to some, a police officer that mistreated you, who mm. also represented an institution, only acted in that way because he was institutionally backed, but also personally was involved. Then you as an analyst, nobody's going to treat you as the bad cop from a situation because... There is no, not the right form to reenact that, right? So there are things we cannot do, but the things we can do, most of the time, they are either directly or indirectly connected to the sphere of love. And if there was no experience of that, people were not heartbroken, bothered about their families, not really sure how to square the fact that they, they love their grandmas in a way that is not totally different than the way they love their, you know, partners or so on. That's a big problem. How do you conceptualize these things? Nobody knows. That's the field we're acting upon. And man, it's amazing. Like analysis can go, nothing happens for like months. Then the person falls in love and in a week they want to solve their solve everything. You know, everything's up for grabs. Like we don't have the power to cause that, but we definitely work within that space once it's put into motion. So I tend to think that the way I would kind of just refine what you said is or push it to the direction of I do think that when you put the frame of these concerns, this concept that you has that kind of try to bring to the fore, regardless of what other people tend to think it's about. Like I I think it's all about putting to the fore the organizational effort it takes to connect one political decision to another or one scientific decision to another. And having as many words as we can, as many concepts as you can to differentiate all the steps that this takes. When you put in those in that frame, you can see a lot of things we usually leave out invisibly. And clearly, you know, the fact that analysts are pushing for acting as if the unconscious exists 
is a big part of what makes a patient that perhaps, especially if you're, you know, not in places where an, a psychoanalysis is culturally accepted already. Like people start working within a premise that you are working with and they didn't. Like they come and they just want their pain to go away. They need to go back to work. And you're the one who's telling them that their pain is more interesting than their work and they should learn something by listening to themselves. Like they don't believe that. First, you believe that. It's not that because there's the unconscious. I mean, what I don't like about the metaphysics of the unconscious is that it pretends like we're not working for it and shaping. Mm. Analysts believe that you can live a better life if you believe in the unconscious. You will take more things into consideration if you do than if you yeah. don't. Yeah. But nobody will make you, but no fact of life will make you believe in the unconscious for on its own. It's, you cannot trust reality to do that job for you. That's a practice we're doing. That's part of that building that domain we were talking about, you know? Yeah. So and that's not a bad thing. I think it's just like 30, 40 years of people saying that producing subjectivity is a bad thing. It makes it look like, you know, when you produce people who believe in communist revolution, that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, man. It's a good thing. Like they're going to believe more things are possible, not less. I do think that this gets, this disappears a bit. And when you put this framework, the body is saying like, man, it takes you need to kind of make certain wagers to connect with the content of what people are saying. And you are making, like, you're instituting a hypothesis and testing it. And it's not just something that you're revealing, like in some right. know, kind of more Lacanian way of speaking about these things. As if, you know, we're just getting out of the way Zen-like and these things are coming to the fore. Man, you're getting in the way in such a specific way. Like, you're getting in the way in the most flamboyant, weird way. You're clearly contributing to the way it appears. But that's not a bad thing. Just own it up, you know? Be responsible for that. And then you will be able to, like, learn how to do it in different ways, perhaps. So I think that he helps with putting things in those terms and giving better tools to talk about it in those terms. And also, I mean, putting Lacan in his, play, in his place when he, Lacan goes crazy on science and things like that. Like, there are much better ways of addressing those ideas. But ultimately, I don't think that frame is meant to fit psychoanalysis exactly. It's meant to fit something broader, and then psychoanalysis is inside of it. I think, first, that there is a history of transformations in structures of kinship, affinity in modernity that is crucial story to understand why psychoanalysis appears when it does. I mean, it's, right. Foucault is on it, Deleuze is on it, everyone is on it, but I think it can be even taken further. Then I think that there is something to be said, not psychoanalysis as a political thing that's subverting, but political content of things. I don't think psychoanalysis has done that much for politics. Perhaps in the sense we were talking about screenwriters being inspired by psychoanalysis, it has inspired like, but mass politics, like things that, you know, change things in irreversible ways. I don't think that it has gone very much through psychoanalysis. That's okay because it did change a lot. It did contribute a lot to new hypotheses about how sexuality, our love lives, where it's acceptable for us to be in terms of our faults and our expectations. And it's very, very much part of that conversation. And in a militant way, like if you tell me, no, man, yeah, you know, every relationship starts like I'm in love and then like it fizzes off and, you know, it's just, I know that not to be true. I've listened to enough people talking about their intimacy to know it can go also many ways, right? So, at that level, we're making a contribution. And, and I would like to see like a discussion of psychoanalysis as one of the few institutions that is not an artistic or literary institution of like pulp novels, romance novels that help to promote the idea that 
love is a creative endeavor. It's not a, exactly a medical thing, though it did kind of arise from there. And it's not exactly a political thing. We're not building the international of gossip like I was talking about. But it's kind of like that. Like if an alien arrived on planet Earth, it would find out that there is like, I don't know, a million people. I'm not sure if it's even up that number of people involved daily in an activity that involves cataloging people's intimate, meaningless intimacies, intimacies giving them types structures, connecting it to other people who then listening to others, knowing all the gossips that were filtered through all of that process and continue to listen to that and say, no, no, your love life is really important. Like, that's what we do. I mean, how many collective international organizations do we know that are based on the idea that love is a serious thing? I think that's really cool, but I don't, I, I like to see that perspective more developed. And then I think it's more like that. That's how I would put it. Like a subpart of a sort of, Call it a side product of the existence of love in people's lives. Because we have these weird attachments, they're weird to explain. Not really about sexuality, in my opinion, psychoanalysis, to be honest. Like sexual difference, that's why sexual difference is not sexuality. It's just how you refract the problem of loving somebody for what they are back onto sexuality. And then, yes, it's not about sexuality. It's about some weird difference that we don't want to name, but we want to put it in those terms to make it even worse for our situation today. But like, that's how I would, I think psychoanalysis can become like a serious part of, you know, trans feminist politics or things like this. Like, yes, there is a, there is a history of trying to come up with a lot of difficulties of international, it's not even national, it's not even like culture based, it's intercultural kind of places where people refine the experience of, you know, loving other people and all the challenges that come with that, it's, not, it's challenging idealization of these things. It could facilitate, like, conversations with social reproduction theory, with take psychoanalysis, for it to become a guest in the discussions of sexuality rather than the host of those discussions. Like, right. that could facilitate all those things. And the Badiouian twist would be to place it like an interesting instrument within that kind of evental history rather than something where events happen, like Freud event. I mean, the weird Freud event is how can somebody, with a, you know, like that, get interested in something that everyone was interested already? Like everyone cared for people's private sex lives, you know, who doesn't? But not everyone comes up with a really complex theory to say, no, this is like the really serious stuff, guys, that drives the world, you know? like That's the crazy part. Like. So I don't know, that, that's that's how I would approach it, though I think that this kind of disappoints the idea that if we want to make psychoanalysis historical, you need to make it political, like find its place in politics directly. I think it will find an indirect place via having a clearer home in a more restricted, more humble area that not many people care about, you know, called everyone's love life. Like, that's already major. Like, we could be content with that, I guess. This is why you you elaborate the different modes that psychoanalysis can have with other discourses, other fields, right? Where you you can say it can have an asymmetrical relation, it can have a correlation, it can have this separation. But the one that you're most interested in is this notion of compossibility. And I think that that perhaps is part and parcel of what you're elaborating as this more restrained, more humble abode that doesn't necessarily denigrate or diminish it by any means, but at least more clearly demarcates its boundaries within which it is functioning. And that, that humility is, I think, also a consequence of, or 
a cause, whatever you want to, however you want to think of it, it's part of what you're describing as being a guest rather than the host of all these other disciplines. Yeah, I think it's very connected with that. And I think that, you know, it's the sort of thing that once you start, try to practice that a bit more, it's much less pressure, much less performance, but it's also like a much wider scope. Like it's very hard. I, mean, I have a lot of trouble with it, man. Like I'm constantly afraid that I'm just saying crappy things when I try to engage with, you know, mathematicians are doing, friends of mine, and or, you know, even politically, as I was saying, like I try my hand at something, but I'm, I don't think people need to be experts about things. But for example, I know that when I talk about political economy in meetings with comrades, I already sound much better because I know what matters and what doesn't in that context for that concept. But when I bring it somewhere else, I feel very frustrated. I'm not sure if I'm doing something that's useful. Connections seem very hard to make. So I get the frustration and the feeling of imposture. And sometimes you double down on. So you add a theory that explains why making that is actually a good thing. I rather not make that theory. And if you get somebody who's from the field, just keep track of what you're doing and you see that you can actually relate to them a bit of what you're saying in their own language and you kind of practice that. The pressure goes down because if you're wrong, you're going to be happy because then you're going to learn because you're interested in learning. Right. You know, so the pressure goes down and suddenly you feel like you're part of a larger community because people feel respected and they become more interesting. So the world goes bigger. So I think that it's a false choice that when you make this more humbling, like, man, I know how to extract consequences. I know what it means to do this in this domain. Outside of this domain, I'm not very sure that when you regionalize things like that, that you're diminishing the size of your world, like you're making it smaller. But it's the contrary. Like, if you need to be the world, then it will be small. If you're a part of a world, then the world could be very big because you're just obliged to be a part of it, right? right? So the effect is that I think you suddenly are interested in reading new papers on these areas and trying to keep up with what people are doing. You have a reason to ask people about what has been going on in your field, you know? And generally, the the, the operator that I feel helps to track this is this double concern of out of I guess it's a philosophical belief or like a general belief that there is, I mean, I think that there is a way to deduce this philosophical effect, why there must be more than one idea and why there must be more than one field with ideas. Because if there's only one idea, every new idea you have is based on that one. So it was an ideal, not an idea. And if there's only one field that has ideas, it's actually an ideal for every other field. Therefore, it wasn't an idea as well. So even either there are multiple ideas in time and in different fields of knowledge, or there is no idea at all. Right. But if there are multiple ideas in multiple fields, assume that first, that because in practice, that means assuming that if you know algebraic topology has a problem, it will come up with its own solution in its own language for that problem. If militants have a problem somewhere coming up with how to do how to pressure the government, it's within the life of militant organization that will come up with a solution. Not because Lacan said that militants are always striving to return to their mother or whatever that this is gonna help. <laughs> you know, like trust that the autonomy of other fields will include the best formulation of their own problems. And if they still need other fields to formulate them, it's because there's still way to go. So trust that this happens to you and to them. And then you can come up with this upper method, which is to say, 
I only want to bring things from other fields that opens up the amount of solutions I can get, not closes, that still allow me to know the difference between using something out of its place for the sake of modeling, for the sake of inspiration. All of these things right, are valid right. and they're we need a theory of those things as well, of those modes of importation, but that I can still tell apart producing consequences at the level of where I am at or at the level of the things I borrow. So just because you're taking the photo of a protest, it might be that in the context of that protest, that photo does something. It gets the next protest to happen because people say, fuck, this was a great photo. But that's not the same analysis as when I'm looking at it aesthetically, is this a good photo? Right. How do you navigate that difference? Don't pretend it doesn't exist. And because it got people on the next rally together, it was a good photo. It might have been the shittiest photo. You need to sometimes come up with, with music for, for chanting that is simple so people can chant it. It's going to be the most stupid thing musically. But that's what you need for to do politics. But now if you want to do music, don't tell me making your music shitty because the people need it. That's a good justification. It's not... It's an aesthetization of a justification. So we knowing how to navigate that difference between what are you doing and what you're using, mm -hmm. knowing how to verify if you're opening up something or closing down, like, oh, man, can only do music now that references this and that because the French Revolution, because the Jacobins, because whatever. I mean, come on. I, I don't think any, any anyone who fought in those situations did that so that now you would be this is much of an asshole, you know, like, <laughs> don't do that. So right. I think that the combination of these criteria creates an interesting situation where you can navigate, you know, between fields. You shouldn't stop connecting things. On the contrary, you will probably will be able to connect more things. But you get better criteria on how to both choose these connections and also know that you've done it in a way that the other field is not just being kind of dragged into any way. So, so yeah, I think that there's something that's compossibility that that helps with that and clarifies that it's a fake choice. Like regionalizing is not making it smaller. You know? It's adding definition or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. We wanted to give you a chance, Gabriel, to go into what you've been working on. I know that you mentioned sort of already some of the thinking you've done since finishing this book, but you could perhaps say... Uh, a little bit more whether or not you're working on a new book if that's even on the horizon or if you're still sort of working through with the collective just kind of tell us a little bit about where you're at where you see sort of your trajectory and um, we can kind of use that as something to look forward to right now I'm, I'm in terms of like analytic theory I haven't been focusing much on it for a while most of the stuff I'm doing now, it's with this research collective, the subset of theoretical practice. In fact, everyone, if you guys ever want to drop by, you're more than invited. And most of the stuff we do is focused on trying to come up with a grammar, a way of talking about political organization that is more on the level of the way we do structural analysis of political economy or like things like this, where you have a kind of slightly more structural robust frame and then you come to political organization things are very kind of moral ethical decision based but not in a kind of very robust way and we, we said well there must be a way of bringing these things together because ultimately you are trying to get organizing to be upscaled to the point that it leaps to the other side of the equation and becomes something like a big social structure so 
can only talk about this if you have a, a common frame. And we've been working on this forever. A lot of side products are appearing from that. The first one is that I, I wrote recently about it, I think for simulation, and it's something I'm I'm probably gonna try to develop a bit, which is we've started doing something where our collective meets other movements, collectives, people doing occupations. And we try to see if there's any kind of, I wouldn't say application in the sense of just telling people our theory, but if it makes us look different to how people are doing things in a way that they also can look at a different way to how they're doing things. So there's this long history of, you know, well, schizoanalysis has something to say on this, uh, institutional analysis, there's a lot of group work. We're trying to develop something that has a slightly different basic condition, which is our basic premise is what we call organizational trinitarianism, which is the idea that to look at things organizationally is to see how the way things are composed affect the way they interact, which affect the way they make things intelligible for themselves. So depending on how you're structured, you will be able to interact with some things, a small group of Young Marxists reading capital cannot interact with the monetary flow of capital, which means they cannot see it, like they cannot sense it, they can theorize about it. Whereas a national central bank, it actually is structured in such a way that it intervenes in the monetary flow and it actually senses it. It gets reactions from it and it makes it intelligible in a way that's much more kind of phenomenological rather than theoretic, right? So what does that mean for organizing? in which way the way we organize affects what appears as relevant information and defines the type of interaction and strategy we think of. So that type of approach to things, it's kind of basing a, a way of discussing or passing along or having conversations with militants that is interesting me. I think there's a, still a long way to go there, but I've been studying this and seeing how this can be useful. That's one thing. The other side project that's appearing to that from that has to be frame that we also spoke very briefly here and that interests me a lot is that it follows from these ideas that we're developing an approach to to the logic of kinship that is trying to integrate more recent anthropology from uh, Viveiro de Castro, these guys who study Amerindian perspectivism and so on. And what we're realizing is that when you bring that in into the more classic, like elementary structures of kinship discussions of Levi-Strauss and so on, and you try to kind of push this all the way to modernity rather than keep it only as analysis of other people, right? It enriches how you approach the conditions under which psychoanalysis comes to appear. Basically, like the, the spoiler of that is that the hypothesis right now is that the atom of kinship for the construction of consistent family structures, it includes some types of social relations that the nuclear family doesn't, which means that the nuclear family is below the atom of kinship. It's less than a unit of affinity and kinship, not enough. And what anal analysts do is that they are private to creating artificial situations where you get to see the supplements people create to mm -hmm. complete an atom of kinship and include it back into social effectivity and reality. So I'm trying to develop that a bit, but it's going to be very slow. I'm not to have absolutely no passion for writing like history books, like the history of whatever. I, I can't imagine myself doing that. So, uh, but but I'm, I'm trying to develop better understand how this affects things. So 
like the big S2P project, I think is the main thing. We're publishing a lot of things. I think there's a book coming out the end of the year or next year. Then these two projects that I'm not sure yet, like this more practical hands-on use of these ideas in political practice and this kind of history of the conditions of possibility of psychoanalysis, which hopefully also includes the future, which not only the presence of psychoanalysis, because I also like to suggest that very likely our future is where psychoanalysis gets dissolved and just a bit of it becomes part of regular social practice. You know, you can have friends, lovers, and you can also meet strangers and they are your analysts, I guess. You meet them often in the park bench or something. Yeah, those are the kind of the big things going on right now. One of the interesting things that you mentioned just, you know, in passing this notion of the nuclear family being sort of less than the the basic unit, and perhaps maybe think of one of the refrains Freud is always saying, and it, he may not have had this in mind, but it could be a sort of unintended consequence is how he's always quick to, I know Deleuze and Guattari are like mommy, daddy, me, but whenever Freud says like the mother, he's always, it's always the mother or her substitute, the father or, or a substitute for it. So this, it's this kind of interesting thirdness of the substitute, which doesn't necessarily have to be just a replacement, but that I think a lot of the times when you look at his famous cases, like the Wolfman, like Ratman, always the origin story of these figures starts with, well, there are these different maids where these little sexual escapades went on. Yeah. And, and they're not necessarily just standing in for the mother. They they are part of the coterie, if you will. Yeah. So, you know. I, no, I, I think mean, that's, a, that's exactly the insight, man. Like Freud's case were never only included. I mean, there, I don't think I can remember one dynamic of a Freudian case where you could actually distill the crucial positions only with mother-father. You right. always have the position that looks like what, like Levi Strauss talks a lot about these people who are, let's say, the brother of the mother. Your, it's like your your weird uncle. The Oedipus structure includes the weird uncle, yep. the guy yep. who's just standing in the play, and he's not really an important character, but he's just there and he's like, look, it's a bit off, you know. That's the atom of kinship includes that, right? Mm -hmm. It includes this weird indeterminate relation with a pair, like a next of kin that might kind of hate you, might oversexualize things a bit, like, and you get to enact there something which is not just this thing. So I think it's there. I think it's a really good, good catch there that it's true. Like you can see this already in Freud. The problem is also that even the examples that come to mind, they're very restricted because this can be very plastic. We can these days analyze, let's say, possible conditions for you to construct. Again, it goes back to our discussion very early on about minimal forms, like the unit you have so you can synthesize larger space. Like the conditions you need to synthesize an atom that fits with the kinship space, they're very variable. As long as you have somebody inside, somebody outside, and somebody who is both inside and outside, but all of them. You kind of get that, like so. It's weird. This uh, this creates the proper ports for you to connect into other kinship structure. Our families don't, don't necessarily have that the logical, but you can go very far with changing this and still seeing the same properties. And I think that the movement of desubstantializing this logical thing from certain social substrates like the mother, the father, is the same movement of desubstantializing 
sexual the, the sexual difference that Lacan talks about back into the logical the sphere of love at the logical level. Of course, it can be mirrored back to that distinction, but it logically could latch on to other things. You know, mm-hmm. it's a maze. I, I'm I'm lost there. Like it's very definitely don't know enough to to move forward with those things. You know, something that I've speculated along these lines in, I think, particular, we did, we covered the uh, Plato Symposium, and I was kind of positing the older male lover as this kind of uncle figure to kind of, to kind of displace this, what, Oedipal relationship or something to get them to work through and be, you know, shown at the ethics of living in Greek society or whatever from a, from a perspective that where there's not this, I guess, anx- not anxiety, but this resentment towards the father that clouds that ability to, for that relationship to be facilitated in a more rich way. But I mean, that's obviously that's like pretty speculative. I don't know if that yeah, man, but, has but, any purchase or not. Yeah, it does. But, but you know, the way I, it's a bit simplistic things can be much more complicated than this but if if we just go like with a to the vulgar virtual space where these things are true the mummy daddy baby kind of triad you have the father it's kind of pointing towards the state like mm-hmm. it represents the state inside right. if, yeah, if somebody's right. gonna be have legal existence and property rights and rights on you know inheritance it's gonna be the the male guy the 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 name passing on is not ancestry passing on. It's right. hereditary rights, right? And the woman, the mother, tends to be pointing towards the communitarian, hidden, social reproductive side that doesn't get counted as labor. So you get that kind of split with the family here and economy, domestic economy being visibilized down and the state being kind of hidden above. And that gives some properties to these figures, right? The father has authority. The mother looks like, what does she want? Why can't I figure my mom's desire? Yeah, she's doing the dishes like most of the time. You don't want to know what she's thinking about, you know? So economy and states kind of meeting at this minimal unit. So what I the idea that somebody pulls you into a different sociality, I think sometimes you can associate that with fatherhood because that's how Lacanians and Freudians read it. Like you need somebody to remove you from this kind of mini right. community and the and this kind of idea of a larger right, social right. space yeah, yeah, would yeah. be a fatherly thing but but the lover thing what you're saying is that it's at the same time very indeterminate because it's neither here nor there it's introducing you to a social space but it's an intimacy so it's not like your teacher right or if it's a teacher it's a teacher of something secret or intimate right. so the crucial trait i would capture in that idea is less the is it pointing outwards or pointing inwards because i think those two get covered you're outside of your mother but you're kind of inside and your your father is outside even though he's inside so he's pointing you to this a big social space your mother's kind of pointing to something you don't know what it is but seems internal to this internal space like domestic something right again the most vulgar version of this weekend what you don't get and it's constantly being discussed in psychoanalysis nobody talks about their father and mother nobody cares like they care about the fact they don't know what to do when they meet a stranger, right? Mm-hmm. Which is neither okay. this or that. This is like a very basic idea in, in structural anthropology that when you meet a stranger in a forest, you don't know enough to know where to place them. Are they inside right. or outside? Are they with you or against you, right? And you need some tools to do that, right? What we call fantasy is the tool we have to do that and aggregate that person to that space, either as an indeterminate position that will be determined later on or as part of the inside and the outside. You you really don't need like a 
deep psychology model of a mind that is categorizing things to see that socially you already would be required to do that even if you didn't have that model in your mind you already have to make that assessment right so right, yeah the idea is that atoms of kinship they need to accommodate that indetermination right away so the logic of uh, restricted and generalized exchange in levi strauss it's all about man we need to to typify our position so that when the stranger arrives, there's a place for them and they're not going to catch us off guard. And we might, for example, include them, but still wait to see where they are. It doesn't mean like we're going to turn them into our best friend. So no wonder that the, the issue in psychoanalysis is the other. And you're not allowed to treat it as any particular other because it's kind of like the question, what are you going to do with the weird stuff? You don't know where it goes. <laughs> And you, you, you're not socially allowed to have a weird uncle. So uh, who is going to bring that into the picture? You know, so definitely to do what you're saying, but I would emphasize less the fact that it's something social being brought up or including, and the fact that it has this weird neither here nor there status. Right. And again, if you remove this question, turn it into like an atomized thing, forget all these other conditions, you're going to get a theory of the object A. It's a metaphysical problem. Right. of neither here nor there and it's being dealt at your intimate subjective level but that's a consequence in my opinion of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of having to deal with like a stranger that's perhaps not even a stranger we're not even sure work needs to be done to integrate this and then the basic structure of how families are organized is not possible under a situation where you're being trained to get into the labor market and you know Domestic work needs to make labor power cheaper and the state needs to make sure you're done in certain certain way. Well, that logical unit of the family, it won't allow you to model and anticipate that sort of encounter. So you come up with some other strategy to anticipate it. That's what we call our fantasies. Like, that's pretty much it. The part of them that concerns psychoanalysis. Thank God that's not all we fantasize about. But like, that's <laughs> the epistemological level of erotism. I need to eroticize to give a place to things that concern affinity. So that's kind of the, the crazy part of it that um, I sound so crazy, guys, when I hear myself saying these things. I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're like, no, no, no I mean, <laughs> you're crazy like a fox because you're making me think with you. So may, maybe I'm, maybe no, that's maybe, great. Maybe I'm a little bit crazy. I want to take that uh, ride the witch's broom with you and stay at all. Like turn. there's man, no, man, if back, you guys right? are interested, all the content has to come out, right? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the first rule. Yeah. <laughs> this is the type of thing. The good thing about this type of idea is that you can be wrong because if an anthropologist comes along and says, no, dude, <laughs> no, simply don't like, that's not it. And I'll have to think something else. You know, well, but at you, least I get I get a reason to meet with people and ask questions. I mean, isn't part of uh, one of the truths that we've kind of learned from Lacan is to hold expertise and a little bit suspect and to be wary of the subject supposed to know. Like maybe the anthropologist <laughs> has become kind of like you know the typical Lacanian is it's gotten settled in in certain. Yeah, I, I, are, there are those. I know we are talking about, like, yeah. exactly. but. So, but I, I think that we need to we need a theory of the subject supposed to know and the theory of the people who actually know because that's missing right, as well. Right. Yeah, that, that's like, true. That's true. Like when you meet a guy from a field you're not very well versed in, you just need to know enough. Again, the metaphor of going to a different country and learning to speak the language. Like right, you don't need right. to be a fluent person to know when they're bullshitting you. You know, like it's like artists talking about their art. They can be great artists and be such bullshitters. Like right. you can tell those things apart if you're interested in what they do. 
you know? So they know stuff. They just don't know everything. So like <laughs> you can take one without the other, you know? So I, I think that Latinians, they just use the subject supposed to know stuff to say, yeah, it's all supposition. No, man, like people really know stuff. <laughs> they really studied it. It's not a matter of being an expert in like the ideological sense. It's the sense that, come on, like I like did, you know, 20 years of ethnography. I, it's hard to imagine that he won't have either, you know, something to say about this crazy dialogue he just had. Like, no, man, like it's not it's not true that you always or, or regularly or frequently find a position of strangers in the formation of families or whatever. Like, and then you'd be wrong. And then you need to do something else. I guarantee that will be more exciting than being right. Uh <laughs> Like it's crazy being taken seriously by people. Like it's it's absurd. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But it's possible, and I think that this sort of thing it has. I do believe it has the potential to to give a different look to these ideas. And but I do think that there's a long way to go, and I don't know yet if this is the right way of framing it. I kind of try to to restrain half of the crazy things I could have said about this topic because the way we're formalizing we're treating these things is kind of formally. So we're doing two steps. We're trying to show that structural anthropology can be thought within a field of mathematics called topos theory that is better than linguistics as a basis. And then we're showing that if you generalize these categories with topos theory, you can see this, these differences more clearly. Like, Interesting. That it's like a weird Breuer algebra, whatever. It's crazy stuff. And huh. so I can be wrong in many places, not only in the anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> But as of now, like I'm working with like two or three anthropologists and ethnographers who've been excited about it. So I I hope it's, but we'll see. I still still early to, to trust this stuff. It's part of the call for experimentation that runs throughout your book. And you know, on here, we never try to claim to be right or to have sort of privileged access to any sort of knowledge. Really, what we try to do here is to kind of, you know. It's kind of free association, say anything, but but perhaps with some effort put in along the way to make sure that we learn the minimal language that you're talking about of our guests, right? I mean, like, obviously, we haven't mastered your work or all the research that went into it, but we felt like we came into a bit of a intimate understanding of what you were trying to do and felt good enough that we could talk with you about these things and also learn from you. I think that's part of the the really the the fun thing on the show is is not to try to demonstrate any mastery right. or, or knowledge but to get to learn with others in a kind of real-time setting and nothing has to be taken as law but hopefully along the way there is something that's going on right in this exchange. Yeah, definitely. Man, I mean, I, I'm thinking a bunch of stuff now as well that I didn't like and also, guys, I really need to thank you. Like, I, it's, it's, it was not often in the reception of the book that I got the sense that people were, like, engaged with the stuff. Like, I forgot a lot of it because I never talk about it. And, like, oh, man. You know, you guys were saying some stuff. I said, like, fuck, is this in the book? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember. Nobody mentioned it. So, like, I, I, that's, like, really special to me. I really, really thank you. Like, it's, it's, it, I, don't, I don't take that for granted at all, guys. It is really, really nice. Well, we appreciate you obviously coming on i mean you brought a lot of energy to to the ideas which i always love and you know what's funny is i kind of feel like coop and i when we do the show when we have guests that are engaged like you are we kind of are in the analyst position right, right yeah let, you exactly. do you do the work and we kind of just <laughs> there it we is kind yeah. of just sit back and, and you know prop, we profit off of that exactly but 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 in all seriousness i think uh 
No, I appreciate. No, you guys are working a lot. I know. I appreciate your time. I really, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I do definitely want to keep in touch because I would love to to hear what you're doing. I mean, you know, if you want, we can. If it's if it's more of a general open thing and not not a closed thing, we can we can leave links that you. Yeah, if you want to share any links, please. Um, you know, sure. Obviously, groups, events, etc. But in any case, you know, we'll be definitely in touch. And I mean, we're not we're a Twitter DM away or an email away. Obviously, we only scratched the surface of your your book. We obviously left some of the the much more kind of complex formulations and and a lot of the amazing diagrammatics. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> like like we would need a PowerPoint, more, guys. I mean, we well <laughs> we would need a few more episodes to do it justice. But in any case, I think that we. Hopefully, one of the things, too, that we hope is that the listener gets engaged and gets interested enough to and our scratching of the surface that they look into these things themselves. Right. So I don't know if you get any royalties, but maybe a few <laughs> pennies, pennies will come your way from the. the yeah, episode. I, haven't, haven't, I should get any royalties, but I haven't gotten anything. This well, uh, hey, 10 cents is coming your way. I, I <laughs> You know how these things work. But in any case, you know, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I know we could probably talk for another hour, but I'm going to let you enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, just really, it was great having you on. It was really great, guys. And I mean, I'll, I'll definitely contact you also because the conversation went so well. I'd love to know what you guys are also interested in working on yourselves. And if you guys are up for, you know, visiting us at our research group and it's, it's an open thing, but, you know, we'd love yeah. to have you guys over and talk more. Sure. Uh, ex exactly. And I feel like there are some, and I know Coop brought this out when I had to step away, but I know there's some proclivities with some of the institutional analysis that Guattari is involved with. That got me thinking about just the meta dimension, loosely speaking, of your work and, and why I think your work, not just because you're an, you're a proper analyst talking about these things, but the, the institutional, the meta dynamic was something that I feel like is not explored enough. And so I think that that made this talk already unique. So I just really got, uh, there's still a lot more, I'm going to be ruminating on these ideas. I can tell I'm going to be marinating in them. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. You have a standing offer, obviously, to come back later in the year or sometime next year. Who knows where you will you'll be at with these things. So I think that we definitely want to keep it in touch. And uh, and and it's- That's really great. Engagement. Really great, man. Now you spoke of marinating and I'm hungry. I need <laughs> really? to cook. Yeah. But uh <laughs> well, we're gonna but stay really, really guys. Thank you so much. Excellent. We're gonna stay on just because we want to talk about the upcoming episode. Um, but so we'll let you sign off. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and uh we'll be speaking with you soon. Sure, guys. Thank you so much, man. We'll, we'll talk some definitely. Excellent. Have a great day. You too, man. See you cool. Bye bye. See you. Once again, thanks to Gabriel Tupanamba for joining Taylor and I on this week's wonderful edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very Peace. roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. 